Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. G'day, Space Junkies, and welcome back to the Space Junk Podcast, where today I bring you part two of my delightful chat with Dr. Space Junk, also known as Associate Professor Alice Gorman. Alice is a space archaeologist and one of my favourite space humans. She is also an archaeologist here on Earth with a specialty in stone tool analysis and Indigenous heritage management. Before we jump back into part two, I want to remind you that you can find video interviews over on my YouTube channel. In the most recent one, I speak with Dr. Jordan Bim about how the astronaut was created, figuratively speaking, from the Mercury program to the current day. So if you haven't already checked that out, I suggest that you do so. And now back to the podcast. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Okay, we've had a problem here. This is Houston, say again, please. Well, let's let's then talk about space junk. As we know, or as listeners will know by this point of listening to my podcast, there is a bunch of space junk, which is sort of circuiting Earth at a rapid pace. And some of it is bits of old rocket. Some of it are things that have fallen out of spacecraft. Some of them are old satellites that no longer function and maybe parts thereof if they've crashed into each other at some point. But I guess the question is, beyond the tech side of things, because removing space junk from orbit is technologically very complex. And then you've got the political side of things, which is the the whole legal thing of who can touch whose junk without permission. And then you've got the the more um, geopolitical concerns around security and dual use technology. So is that a space junk removing uh, missile you have there or is that just a missile missile? So all of those questions aside, because I think we've covered them at length in previous podcast episodes, but the question that really always fascinates me is what is junk? I mean, what makes this stuff space junk? And, and where, who gets to say whether it is a piece of junk or whether it's a piece of orbital heritage? And it seems to me, Alice, that I'll, the buck stops with you. You get to say. So tell us, <laughs> what is, is it? How do you decide? Um, well, I think we should start first with taking up that idea of, you know, what is junk? So we just call it space junk. But there is actually a definition of space junk, which is widely used. It's, it's something that does not now or in the foreseeable future have a purpose. So there's a huge amount of stuff that doesn't currently have a purpose, but this doesn't mean that it isn't working currently or that it could not be made to work or it couldn't be repurposed. So it's a very blanket term for something that's, that's 
very grey area, I think. And I would argue that some pieces of stuff in orbit, cluster space junk, have a purpose, which is a social and cultural purpose. And that purpose can be to connect communities to outer space and to their space heritage. So a social purpose is just as valid as a scientific or commercial purpose. So how do we figure this out? And it is actually, I see you raising your eyebrows, it's actually more straightforward than you would think. So when I first started working in space archaeology, one of my earliest questions was, does terrestrial practice and terrestrial principles even apply in space? Because there's no reason to assume that they would. But as it turns out, for a lot of stuff, they do. So I would do exactly the same thing that I would do for a concentration of stone tools that I found on a Hunter Valley coal mine for a piece of space junk. And this would be to work out the nature and degree of its cultural significance. So you would ask, what is its historical significance? Its aesthetic significance, which does not mean is it beautiful? It is about those things we talked about before. It's about the experience of handling that object or being near it, its scale, its color, texture, its smell. Does it smell of raspberries like the center of the galaxy is meant to smell like? Uh, then you have scientific significance. And this is about research significance. So the easy way to explain this is if we lost this piece of space junk, what questions would we not be able to answer anymore? So what is the research potential of keeping this object? Mm. How many is that? Is that three or four? Then we have social significance. And this is about contemporary community esteem. Does anyone care about this object? And you might think that nobody would care about a bit, bit of space junk in orbit. And Annie, you would be wrong. In fact, you wouldn't be wrong because I know you don't believe this, but people actually do have strong attachments to a lot of the stuff that's up there. And there's also spiritual significance, but I think that's, there's probably a little bit less spiritual significance for bits of space junk than there might be for Apollo 11, the Apollo 11 landing site. Mm. Well, maybe not, maybe I'm making too many assumptions here. So you would work through all of these things. And so you might have something that had virtually no historic, aesthetic, social, scientific significance, or maybe it has a little bit of scientific significance. So, so let's take something like the population of rocket upper stages in low Earth orbit. So there's hundreds and hundreds and hundreds. This is the final stage of the rocket that delivers the payload and often remains in orbit, either attached to it or just free floating. They're a major hazard for collision in low Earth orbit. But we've got hundreds of them. So scientific significance would say, well, we need to keep a sample of those because maybe at some point in the future, we'll be able to go and look at them. Or maybe we want to take a little sample of, of one of these rocket bodies to test how the material has held up in the space environment. Or maybe we just want to, we don't have any left on Earth and we want to see what they actually look like. So, so this is something you call representativeness. So 
there are hundreds, I don't know, I think there's something like 500 Russian cosmos rocket bodies up there. So we can let a few of those go. I mean, they, a lot of them are re-entering all the time, but a lot of them it takes some time to go. So if we had to make a decision, we're sending up a little space removal tug. We can't do this anytime soon, as you pointed out, but we might be able to in the future. What are we going to collect? So we'd be making a number of, of decisions around this. So one is that if we remove all of those cosmos bodies, rocket bodies, then there aren't any left. So maybe we want to leave 10% or some percentage of them. Mm. Maybe. So there's another rocket type, the Agena, which was very widely used in the American space program for uh, the Gemini and Apollo missions. So it's a bit of a workhorse rocket. There's a huge number of those as well, but they've been around for longer. A lot of more of them have re-entered and it's very easy to make a case. So if people have seen some of the recent um, films that have come out about Apollo 11 and they've shown scenes of two rockets jockeying together. So these were Agenas. So these are historically incredibly significant. They're no longer used. So we probably want to keep an Agena or two up there too. So remember, the rocket is a really interesting object because it technically doesn't exist. The rocket is assembled prior to launch, up until which point it is only in parts. When it is launched, the parts break up. So it exists literally only in the period between its full final assembly and the point at which the first stage falls off. So that's the whole rocket. Mm. So we don't actually have, for a lot of cases, we don't have examples of whole rockets. We don't have examples of these, the second and third stages that were consumed when they fell back to earth. So we need to think about how many of these things are left. Are these the only examples we're gonna have? And here's the other critical part here. If the collision risk is low, then our most effective option is to do nothing. We neither remove it actively, which will cost a lot of money. We certainly don't shoot it out of the sky, which, you know, people seem to think from time to time is a great option. Yeah. Not such a bad option. And unless it is proving to be an immediate collision risk, we literally do nothing. So it doesn't cost any money and we have saved some heritage. We're not going actively out of our way to get rid of some of this stuff. So there's other stuff. The example I always use, so apologies if this is a boring one, is the Vanguard 1 satellite, the oldest human object in orbit. So this it was launched in 1958. It's been up there 62 years. It's this gorgeous little polished silver sphere about, well, Khrushchev famously called it the grapefruit satellite as an insult because it was so little. So it's the size of a pretty big grapefruit, maybe more like a pomelo or something like that. But it's gorgeous. It's got its six antennas. It's got its little tiny solar cells. It's got such a lovely sort of friendly feel to it. It's kind of like a silver spherical cat, I think. And people say, people often say to me, they, they say, well, look, shouldn't we pull it back down to earth and put it in a museum? And my answer to that is, well, 
if you put it in a museum, they, they say, you know, you can't see it in orbit. Well, if you put it in a museum, you will only see it if you can go to that museum. Mm. And this it would probably end up in the National Air and Space Museum in Washington, D.C. And you can only go to see that museum if you're a U.S. citizen or capable of getting into the U.S., which many, many, many citizens of many nations are not. They're not allowed in. So it doesn't really belong to everybody, um, which is the rhetoric of space industry when you put it in that museum. Mm. But up there, it does. And moreover, that's so it's junk. And if we look at those other meanings of junk, it, you could also say, well, it's litter in space. And litter is something that is sort of out of its normal place. Litter mm. is discarded objects that you find in places where they shouldn't be, often in natural environments. But if you think about, if you think of, if we call Bagai One junk, is it useless? Does it have no purpose? Well, it does. It has that social and cultural purpose, mm. representing the, the, those first steps into space. Is it litter? Is it out of space, out of its place? Is it something that needs to be put in the bin? Well, it's actually in its space. Like that's where it lives. That's where it was intended to be. Mm. So this is its natural setting and its natural setting is part of its cultural significance. Mm. So we then can assess, is it a collision risk for mm. other spacecraft? Well, it isn't at the moment. And we know this because the major space agencies who maintain catalogues of space junk perform conjunction analyses every day. So if it were to become a collision risk, we'd know about it. And this hasn't happened to date. So it's fine to leave it there for the moment. This could change because if I remember correctly, it's, it's perigee, the part of its orbit closest to Earth, is actually something like 700 or 900 kilometres. So a lot of the new internet satellites that are being launched, the Starlink and OneWeb constellations may actually be in orbits around there. And 600 kilometres is a bit of a congested place as well. So it's possible that with this changing orbital landscape, either Vanguard 1 itself will be at risk. So I would say to Elon Musk, you get your damn satellite out of the way or it will be considered a collision risk to other satellites, in which case we might reassess what we do with it. There's a question there about, you know, with, with Starlink, if you've got so many of these satellites up there, like this web of, of replica satellites, then you, as you say, surely they should get out of the way of this one-of-a-kind satellite. I agree. I also do think that sometimes we need to think about not just what is a value socially and culturally for our generation, but if you fast forward 200 years, mm -hmm. what would be a value to a generation then socially and culturally? And I think there's an argument to be made that making decisions now on the basis of what we think is cool now is difficult because you know, satellites like Vanguard, which have that, which were launched so early in our relationship with, um, with combating gravity, really, in that way, are 
mm. are special in a way that will only increase over time. And I think that there is some argument to be made there, but is, is that something you would think about as an archeologist? Absolutely, and you've hit the nail on the head there, Annie, because heritage management really is about trying to predict for the future, what to keep now for people in the future. Mm. And how do we do that? We don't know what they, we, we're, we're trying to make decisions based on what we think we need to know now but to use an example, so I don't know how many years ago, 30 years ago, we could not have anticipated that DNA analysis would become so huge. Mm. And yet this, is, this would now be something we'd, we'd be saying, oh, you know, we need to make sure we keep biological samples that the Apollo astronauts took to the moon because we can do some really interesting analysis of this stuff. Mm. And we would never have thought about this stuff you know, 30 years ago. So there will be techniques in the future that we can't imagine. And yet we have to somehow try and make decisions that will enable those future people, which is part of the reason that you always leave. There's an archeological principle that you never excavate a whole site. You always mm. leave part of it unexcavated for the future. And in a sense, one thing we can do is ensure that there is a representative sample of everything that's been launched into space available. But the rest of it, like we have no idea what future communities are going to think is important. So at the moment, all of the stuff, all of the space junk in Earth orbit is dominated by US launched material. They have a primary contributor, USSR, former USSR, Russia comes close but they're the primary contributor of all space junk. But let's imagine a world 200 years, and it's kind of easier to imagine this in the situation we're in right now. Um, 200 years from now, maybe African space programs will dominate the space world. There's certainly uh, a number of science fiction writers and of course the Afrofuturism movement, which are exploring this kind of thing. So if, if African space programs are the dominant ones, maybe the US space junk will not be so significant to them. Maybe it will, maybe it won't. So maybe they'll be looking to preserve the evidence of their own heritage in space to tell a particular story. At the end of the day, heritage is always profoundly political. So this could change and it could change quickly. Something that you could say too, so 200 years from now, if you're surveying all of the stuff in orbit, minor space players may have no material evidence that they were ever there. And it's very easy to erase these stories. It's far easier to get rid of history than you might hope. And I'm not trying to say there is one true version of these things, but again, a diversity of stories and voices and evidence is something that we might consider to be important. So we could turn this on its head and say, what's it gonna be like on the surface of the earth in 200 years? Well, very difficult to know. We're already talking about the post Anthropocene before we've really even had time to get our heads around the actual Anthropocene. So maybe 200 years from now, humans are not even spacefaring anymore. So 
will they care about any of this stuff up there? Will it just gradually, all of the stuff in low to medium earth orbit gradually get pulled back in and the entire archaeological record of orbit will consist of only the most robust parts of spacecraft which have survived onto the surface. And that will be it. So I think it's a really interesting question to consider. And you're absolutely right. All of this is about the future. I think in a time and an age of action and instantaneous gratification of internet and social media and one-click Amazon orders, it actually takes great courage to decide that we should do nothing. Mm. And for that to be the conclusion that we reach, if we were to do this proper assessment of objects in orbit, it's very tempting to think that because we might have the technological means to start removing some or to, um, you know, to, to make those decisions about what stays and what goes, that um, that we we have to exercise that power, I guess, and make those decisions. But perhaps we don't have to. We're too close to our own history, and. Mm. It's better, as you say, to, to stick to the collision risks and make decisions there about moving things or, you know, maybe removing <laughs> duplicate items that are particularly in particularly crowded orbit. But beyond that, not, not touching things for a while. I, I wonder whether that will end up... I have very little confidence that that will happen, but <laughs> I wonder whether that would be the most wise approach at this point yeah i i like this because one of the sets of principles that i use very frequently in space is called the borough charter mm. and its main mantra is do as much as is necessary but as little as possible and i think we could apply that to a whole range of different things and something people often say to me is, you know, why do you want to preserve all this space junk? Like, well, I don't want to preserve it. I just want to help manage its cultural values. And they say, what are you, what are you going to do about all of the stuff getting pulled back in and destroyed? And I'm like, well, nothing. That's kind of like an organic process. That's how orbit works. And there's no point in interfering in that process. So if, if what that means is, eventually everything gets pulled back in within that altitude range, then that's okay. That's just how it works. I guess for me, it's about not actively making a bad decision when, as you say, to do nothing actually gets you to an ethical outcome or you have, you have actively done no harm and you have not inadvertently done harm by attempting to do good, I guess. So to do nothing in that sense, exactly as you say, can be a powerful position. Alice, I think that's a beautiful place to leave it. Um, I'd like to thank you so much for making time to have this conversation, which will be shared with all of the listeners all around the world. I think we're now in 
Space Junk is now listened to in over 25 countries. So, um, wow. Yeah. That's impressive. Oh, look, it's, um, it's, a, it's a shock to me and, and, <laughs> a, and a great privilege, I think, also to be talking to so many people who I have never met. But um, I, I want to thank you so much for taking the time and ask listeners if you're interested in Alice Gorman's work, then by all means hop on JSTOR or anywhere else on the internet and look up some of her um, more extensive papers. But also, I can personally recommend Dr. Space Junk versus the Universe. In fact, I, act, I, I wrote a review of it um, for a, you a did history. You did a lovely review. Yeah, a history of science publication. Um, and uh, and I can also personally recommend it. So do give it a read. But Alice, is there anything you wanted to say? Any any last words? I shouldn't say that in the time of COVID. But any any you know thoughts that you'd like to leave the listeners with? Well, Annie, thank you very much for having me on. Can I say that having learned more about your accomplishments, it should have been me who was intimidated by you. But I'm very glad to have been a guest on your podcast. And I would like to say to all of your listeners out there, say hi to the moon for me. And we will. Thank you, Alice. Thanks, Annie. You've been listening to the Space Junk Podcast. You can find Alice Gorman on Twitter, where she is Dr. Space Junk, and you can also find me as Annie Handmer. If you've got any questions, send me an email on thespacejunkpod at gmail.com. And to sponsor the podcast, head to www.patreon.com slash thespacejunkpod. Patreon is spelt P-A-T-R-E-O-N. Thanks for listening and see you next week. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com podcast. That's Indeed.com podcast. Terms and conditions apply.